Hi there. Welcome to Mushroom Hour. Today on Mushroom Hour, we have the glorious opportunity to speak with Kristen and Trent from Modern Forager. This fungal dynamic duo started out as online marketers who turned a love of mushroom adventures into a calling, a community, and really an obsession. Over the years, they have met countless amazing folks, been to quite a few mushroom festivals, and have explored many, many wonderful places. And they're always on the hunt for fungi, wherever they find themselves. Now, two years ago, both of our guests individually decided to pursue a wild mushroom food safety certification, which is actually incredibly difficult to achieve in Colorado. They had to become certified in several eastern states and then translate those results to Colorado. Now, one of their most exciting projects is a burn morel mapping platform they've created for chasing burn morels in the Pacific Northwest. Over the years and millions of hours of collating burn data, they're able to offer a system that will shorten any forager's learning curve when it comes to burn morels. And I'm excited to learn more about their deep explorations into mycophagy and how mushrooms have transformed their lives for the better. Kristen and Trent, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having us, Darren. We're super excited to be here. Just saying before the show, you've got a bunch of different projects that are really unique and cool. So there's tons to, to talk about from mapping burn morels to books and everything in between. Uh, but why don't we start with kind of that all important origin story, how you guys started foraging, how you got into fungi, how you got out into nature. What were those sequence of events that kind of led you on the on the path you're on today? We love people's origin stories, don't we? I think it's one of the most exciting things to talk about. But yeah. um, as far as our own origin story, I don't know that it's that exciting, but um, I think both of us can attest to the fact that we were growing up as latchkey kids kind of thrown out into nature by our parents and so both Trent and I are, are Midwesterners. I grew up in Wisconsin and Trent in Ohio and we spent a ton of time outside in nature as kids so I think there's something to be said for that for sure. As adults the two of us have an interesting relationship story. You know, well, Let's hear it. <laughs> put the juicy stuff out there first. Trent and I are both remarried and we have been together for just over eight years now and I feel like this love of foraging grew with us as our relationship grew together so in some ways you know that's kind of why it's so special I think because we were yeah. growing to love mushrooms as as we grew to love each other and we will always have that and it's, it's pretty cool. Foraging mushrooms is really our thing we have together with each other, which is what makes it special. That's beautiful. But, you know, singularly, I will say, you know, we each did have influences, of course. I worked for a science center in Avon, Colorado, called Walking Mountains that actually did mushroom forays at the time that I was working there. Strangely, I never went out on one of their forays. I still can't believe that because it was just a little bit before I kind of got into it, but you know, I, I learned what it was because I was seeing it every day. Uh, but I think for me, the connection is closer to fishing. I, I've been a young child through my adulthood, just absolutely obsessed with fishing, fly fishing as I became an adult. And I think the, the obsession is kind of similar in my mind to going out on the river and having a trout rise to your fly it is somehow similar to walking through the woods and seeing a portuguese. Well, they definitely both require a lot of patience. They require a communion with nature. And I had a feeling that morels would feature somewhere in one or both of your stories. Because when you think Midwest and mushrooms, you immediately think morel. Yeah. I'm, I'm somehow not shocked by that. I just love how this has been something that you guys have bonded over. Because I know in my own relationship with my partner, it's something that's definitely brought us so much closer as we've grown in foraging, as we've grown in our relationship. I guess in reading your background, I know you guys were kind of into that world of online marketing and WordPress, building websites. How did you end up Maybe that's something you're still doing, but how did you end up gradually shifting to spending more and more of your time 
dedicating it to foraging community and making resources for foragers like like the morel maps i mean how did that transition start or was it not you know a stark transition as it all kind of just blended together i mean well we definitely are still wordpress people and we still build websites that's how we pay the bills i guess you right. would say <laughs> right but you know i think this idea for both of us that have been doing that for so long of blogging and just kind of sharing our story and as you grow a passion um you know being marketers it's kind of natural to jump in and and do that and i think when we started doing it we didn't really think about what it would be or what it would become um as far as the burn morels i'll let trent tell you about that but that really grew out of i think his own research and passion to just kind of follow this path yeah we're always very from the beginning, very what I would call modern foragers. We embrace technology and uh, whether that's the right kind of clothing or or actually technology we hold in our hands, we just enjoy that. And I think the, the website really grew out of us liking to blog and talk about mushrooms. But then we decided to explore this idea of burn morels out west. And I spent the winter trying to figure out how we would find burn morels the first year. And I made my own maps and I did a lot of research and drove out to Oregon and we stepped out of the car we had at the time into a burn and we started finding morels and it was awesome. And then we went to another one that I had mapped out, thought maybe this is the right one. And we found the morels again. And after two years of making my own maps and kind of meeting people out there, people wanted my maps yeah. uh, because, you know, it's tricky to find burn perimeters and, and even trickier to curate them out because the real problem with burns are there's millions and millions and millions of acres that burn every year depending right. on the year. And it's just too much. If you're a beginner, you look at a burn and go, can I find morels there? And nine out of 10 times you can. So, right. Uh, we started, as we started going every year, we go out to Oregon or, or s somewhere out west and hunt burn morels. I just started preparing my maps more carefully for more and more states and people wanted to buy them. So it kind of, in the third year, we made the maps so you could buy a membership and kind of see my maps, the ones that we hunt with. It really took off from there. We wrote a little ebook on how to, how to do it, how to hunt morels, burn morels, which I think now as a book, it's not really published, it's self-published, and it's the only book on the market about burn morels. And it took some Midwesterners coming out west to teach us about burn morels, and I've had that experience many a time of just going to the burn, getting excited, and the morels just aren't there. So I guess without revealing too many of the secrets of Trent's burn morel maps, what are you looking for in a burn? Because, you know, I know with morel hunting you can find pretty easily you can find prescribed burn areas from different forest services but you know in those huge territories and so many to choose from what are some key factors that you look for that that go into your maps we don't mind we share the information all the time we have a, several youtube uh, webinars out there for people that want to watch oh you guys are awesome we have a ton open of source yeah totally and at the end of the day these burn perimeters are available out there on the internet for anybody that wants them. And I, I think it's a question of, do you want to pay us $40 to have some convenience and some wisdom maybe behind the curation and, and all that or not go, you know, they're out there. People want them. So a lot of, not a lot, people occasionally gripe, like you can't sell this. It's free information. And I like, well, I don't understand why I put in 200 hours this winter on free information right. for you to have. So I think it's a matter of convenience. But what we do is we map out every burn in the Western United States. Now, we do live in Colorado. Now. Okay. Um, we also added British Columbia and Alaska to that. So we go Colorado, Arizona, New Mexico, Utah, California, Idaho, Montana, Oregon, Washington, B.C., Alaska. And we're going to have to add South Dakota one year here soon because they have them as well. Um, and I map every single wildfire. And then I go through and remove the vast majority because they don't meet the criteria. Number one, they have to be on public land. So you've got to remove anything on private or anything on, say, an Indian reservation. 
Oh, um, right, right. Number two is there's a lot of wilderness areas that you cannot pick mushrooms in and pick morels, so I, I remove those. Number three, which is a big one, uh, we remove anything that doesn't have the right kind of trees. We're looking for, you know, conifer forests in areas that typically have snow in the winter. Okay. So, you know, L.A. is not one we're going to include, but it fires around L.A., but there's a lot of high elevation fires in, say, Arizona or even Mexico proper or New Mexico that have uh, snow in those mountains. So trees are very important. And then from there, we rate the fires, A, B, and C, because we really only want to find the A fires, the top fires. And we're looking a lot at access at that point. How easily can you get into these fires? We don't want to hike 10 miles and bushwhack to get into them. We want to drive in and step out whenever possible or have an easy trail. Um, We look for size um, and elevation. So Often, uh, you know, you can find a lot of two or three acre fires. They're not really where you want to drive two hours to a two acre fire. The big fires that offer a lot of different aspects and elevations and tree types and slopes so that you have a diversity of terrain to go find where the mushroom patches are inside that terrain. Really, trees and access are the two top things. So you're taking hundreds of hours to just collate that public data on fires, fire perimeters, and then using the the blizzard screening process, if you will, to rate these fires, figure out which ones are the tops of the tops. And then obviously you are using these maps. How successful are they? I mean, how well do these, the screening criteria you use, meaning the spots you select, how often does that lead to success? Are we at like 100% here? I mean, is this a really high ratio you're able to achieve by... Yeah, I would say say definitely 100%. A few issues. One is the weather, you know, can't fight Mother Nature if it's too cold or too dry. Sure. Number two is there are some areas where trees can be hard to predict. I have learned that, for instance, uh, I, I usually don't rate coastal fires very high. I don't think they grow very well in that area. I'm a little unsure of some areas. I can think Northern California, the trees are different. So there's a few parts of the country where I don't know exactly the the right kind of trees. I can't tell from satellite. Right. Other than that, it's pretty good. I, you know, in the states of Oregon and Washington and Colorado, I can, I can really be pretty successful at predicting morels when the weather is, is correct. The first and second year, that wasn't the case. We, we've been to, probably 40 fires in the last five years and the first couple years we you know would go into them and go oh the trees aren't right here and i would go look on satellite and go oh now i see why they weren't right here and extrapolate that in future years especially when you're hunting something as elusive as burn morels you want to think there is some methodology like this that can increase your chance of success you know after that first few times of just going out in the woods and striking out you start thinking man there's got to be a way to do this smarter and so i love to hear the process you go through and that kind of preparation for the hunt that leads to a better forage and i think some of these tools even satellite mapping looking at areas can be used even if you're not talking about burns right yeah for sure i mean that's part of the maps are uh, that you can switch between U.S. Forest Service, USGS maps, the satellite map, and then the road access maps. Yeah. So um, you get to see a lot of different views within the perimeters of each fire, yeah. which is pretty cool. Yeah, because the Google, I, I would caution anybody too. The the Google maps are great. They have wonderful satellites. It's, it's wonderful. The road maps from Google inside the national forest are pretty dodgy. Right. They, I used those the first two years and, you know, you think you can drive somewhere because Google has it on their map and they're not accurate. We now include U.S. Forest Service maps in our, in our product, our digital overlay, because their, their road maps and their gates are, are much more accurate. And that's a big unknown. Often they throw up a gate in front of a fire, especially if it's near an urban area. Some big fires around Portland that have been closed off for instance. And we can't tell that from looking at satellite. And we'll probably touch on this again at the end when I kind of give everyone your information, but I'm sure anyone like me who's listening wants to know where do I get my hands on these maps? 
these curated maps, these digital overlays. How do you guys make that available to the public? And then on that question, what's the response been from people that use them? Um, it's pretty easy to get your hands on them. They're just at modernforager.com. And I think in the main navigation, maybe it says burn maps or something. I would say there's definitely sort of a season for morel hunting in, in burns. You sure. start to see the mania happening even as early as February, I'm going to put out there. Wow. But people are just talking about it and thinking about it and dreaming about it. Um, there's definitely a, a mania, as you know. But then the season doesn't really start until like May. May is when it really gets going. When it gets going. People start purchasing maps in April, really. April, May, June are really the three months that people are going to be hitting the burns hard. Although I will tell you last year in Colorado, we had a very large fire right near our house. And, and unfortunately, again, we have another one this year happening now. But last year in the Lake Christine fire, which was in Basalt, Colorado, I suppose the fire was the season before that. But last year during the hunting season, Mother Nature provided just the absolute perfect conditions. I mean, we had we had rains, we had proper temperature and everything within that burn including the trees it was mixed conifer forest it was just absolutely perfect everything aligned we were hunting burn morels into mid-august and heard from other folks that they continued to hunt even into september in that fire and we weren't just hunting them in mid-august we were filling our baskets and two hours (laughs) leaving the woods because you know do you really need more? We, we just I mean, had, it was insane. Yeah, it was crazy. Yeah. And and they were the the beautiful tomentosas at that time. So if you have a fire that has the elevation range, right. um, in Colorado, those ranges are going to be different than, say, in Oregon, for example. Our elevations are higher. But you can hunt and just follow the mushrooms up as the season goes along it's really pretty cool that you you get the opportunity to do that it's so very different than hunting natural morels in the midwest for example you know burn morel hunting i gotta say this past year was the first time i really had any success uh, in the sierra nevadas in california and this was you know mid-june and there's something eerie and really awesome about burn hunting for morels, just that stark landscape. You've kind of got soot on your hands and your clothes. And then the morels standing out like these little Christmas trees in contrast to all the burned out trees around them. There's really something special about, about hunting burn morels. And you guys are kind of hinting at it and talking about all the places you cover. But if there is kind of any general circuit you can lay out for us, what I'm impressed by is it seems like you guys are kind of following mushroom seasons a lot of the time doing van forager life and being like these mushroom hunting nomads. So can you take us a little bit through, you know, the circuit you guys take to follow the seasons and if you have how you've adapted your life or kind of around that? Yeah, for sure. I will jump in. We sort of start, if we're going to look at a calendar year, typically in January, we are going to the Soma camp in California Mm which is awesome. If you haven't been to that, I highly recommend it. Unfortunately, a friend of ours told us that where the summer camp is had been evacuated due to the fires. So I haven't followed up on that. Gosh, I really hope that everything it's near Occidental, that area. It's okay. But um, it's a pretty special experience. That's the Sonoma Mycological Association camp. And if you are looking to go to that, you need to join the organization and sign up. As Super soon competitive. As they open up, it will, sells if, out. if you wait a couple of weeks, it'll sell out. It's a marvelous event. Definitely. Yeah. And I encourage people, too, who are listening anywhere in Northern California, you should probably be a part of the Sonoma Mycological Association anyway, even if you can't get into Soma Camp, just because it's such a great organization full of such knowledgeable people. I mean, Paul Stamets regularly showing up to that event, but just all these mycological powerhouses are part of that. So Yeah, it's pretty awesome. So we head to California in January. And, and there's um, uh, candy caps, matsutake, hedgehogs, black trumpets. Yeah, if you're lucky. Um, if nature participates. 
get all these awesome things. More, but those are the those are the big eaters that we're, we're finding in January. Yeah, and we're you know usually after summer camp we head to like Salt Point State Park or up into Mendocino into um, Jackson Demonstration State Forest and hunt there for a little bit, and then we head back to Colorado and we don't really do much for several months, not until we start thinking about hunting burn morels in Oregon. And Although two years ago, we did go looking for morels in March in Oregon. In Eugene. Because they start, the morels start in March in Oregon. Usually we're not doing anything again until end of May, beginning of June. We always go over Memorial Day weekend. And Oregon is our great love. We love Colorado, but it might be my first love. I don't know. I love Oregon so much. It's really yeah. Beautiful state with so many different climate zones and habitats. And so we will go there for two to three weeks and literally just chase the burns and the rain. So where we are, where we end up depends on where the precipitation is. At that time of the year, the morels are typically growing around 4,500 feet in elevation. Trent has us into all the burns that cover that elevation range. And we literally just kind of have our ear on the ground there. You know, if, if you're in the right circles, people talk. So you sort of know where the commercial hunters are. Um, and we right. see a lot of that out there. Sure. Um, Although that said, you, if you just watch the rain, it's pretty easy to predict it where is to go. And, and you can start earlier in, in California if you wanted to, because they do, you know, kind of start out in the Sierras a couple weeks before they make it up into mm-hmm. Oregon. Uh, Arizona uh, and New Mexico are awesome spots to go as well, as well if, if they get the rain. Colorado too, as we saw last year. A little later though, so that's that's May and, May and June, and then we come back and Colorado. Colorado's season is going to start in mid July, and if we're lucky, we're very lucky. We've seen it go even into early weeks of October, but that's pretty rare. This year we had a, a terrible season in Colorado. In fact, we have, like I mentioned, a fire uh, in Glenwood Springs where we live. And it's yeah. been so dry and just not a good season at all. So we decided to escape the heat and the smoke and we headed to Wisconsin and Minnesota where we have some family roots. And we last week we were hunting in the north woods of Wisconsin uh, near Cable. Oh my gosh, I gotta say, what an amazing, what an amazing place for mushrooms. I mean, it has been awesome. I gotta say, we might have to like add it to the list every (laughs) year. It's just been really beautiful. We were out one day and I think we collected nine edible species in about two and a half hours. Wow. Including chicken of the woods and heresium and black trumpets and hedgehogs and yellow feet and oysters. chaga puff and balls. oysters and puff balls. I mean, it was just, it's a Mecca. It's crazy. Turkey tail. Yeah. Rishi turkey tail. We now, had all the Last year in September, we went to Western Pennsylvania, which also feels very Midwestern. Right. Um, yeah. So I, I think September is a nice time to head to the Midwest. Yes. After hunting far in August in, in Colorado. Now, do yep. you find a little less, I don't know if competition is the right word, but do you find a little less competition in the Midwest as well? Because it feels like, especially in Oregon, I mean, every other person's a mushroom forager. Um, so do you find that you're bumping into people more when you're out on the West Coast, out in the Pacific Northwest, versus when you're in the Midwest? Maybe that's the reason you're finding such an abundance with because people just haven't been picking them as much? Or We didn't see another soul out there hunting mushrooms. So. <laughs> yeah. There's that, but uh, also there were just so many places to go. Yeah. And, and I guess it's the same in Oregon. If you know what you're doing, you know, there are a lot of places to go there too um, in season, but it's hard really, to know. I don't think we really worry too much about other pickers, even in Burns or, or in Oregon. I feel like there's just always a lot of mushrooms out there. If you just maybe turn left instead of right or go a little different direction, or even if other pickers have been through, I don't think we really worry about other pickers and don't consider it as a as a factor too much. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for example, in a burn, we have followed commercial pickers and I'm here to tell you they they don't pick everything. Those guys are moving fast and they're right. picking picking 
easy. You know what I mean? They're grabbing as much as they can, as fast as they can, and they're moving on and they leave a ton behind. Even if we take a trail through a burn and turn back and come yeah. the other direction, you, you get almost as many on the return trip. <laughs> yeah, you never get tracks. them all. It's, it's crazy. But it's an interesting question, yeah. I think. Yes. I do think it's much more competitive, for sure, in the Pacific Northwest. And there are a lot more people who have it on their minds versus probably folks here in Wisconsin. You know, it's also worth pointing out, we are, we are not commercial pickers. We don't sell our mushrooms other than we might dry some and sell them in one ounce packages off of our website. And that's kind of occasionally when we have a lot. We're not commercial makers. So I think if you have to pick you know, enough to sell, you probably have a different view on that. Definitely. Sure. I've come to appreciate the commercial picker mindset versus, you know, the hobbyist or the amateur where, you know, if I get tens of pounds of mushrooms, I kind of stop myself. Like I, I can't even deal with all these. Whereas like you said, commercial pickers are going, moving quickly, trying to get the highest quantity for the least amount of effort, which totally makes sense. And the reason I brought that up about competition is you mentioned uh, Salt Point State Park here in California. Oh, yeah. There there are certain areas like that, that I think it's pretty well known to mushroom foragers. They just become full of foragers or pickers yeah. to the point where, you know, even the most veteran seasoned hunters that I know just say, Hey, I'm staying away because I won't even find anything there. So I think Salt Point is probably on that list of places we've been. It's probably the most competitive spot for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Salt Point is definitely really well known. And also I just feel like there's kind of these hidden gems like Wisconsin and parts of Michigan. As I'm getting to know more people, they have beautiful woodlands and tons of rain, and it seems like there are just less people tuned into it. So I think there is still some amazing mushroom hunting grounds yet to be found throughout the country. And that's what's so intrigued me about you guys traveling around is you're kind of exploring uh, some of these different zones. There's two types of areas too. There's areas where there's commercial buyers and where there's not. And I think yeah. that's right. a big differentiator. When when there's a commercial buyer nearby, that means there's uh, more people out in the woods picking basket bowls. And, and you don't see, like, I don't, I've never seen a commercial buyer in Colorado. Not that there aren't, but they're not parked on the side of the road with a sign. Right. Yeah. It's Which happens in Northern California. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's true. And I don't think you would ever see that. Maybe during morale season. But I don't think you'd ever see that in Wisconsin or Minnesota. And as you're tapping into all these different fungi communities and mushroom habitats, what's your relationship been like with the online and in-person mycological community? We should hold off because we haven't finished our year yet. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. 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 Let's let you guys go into the rest of the year. Tell them about the last three months. So the exciting part for us is middle of October, we go to the Oregon coast oh. and we, we try to spend four to six weeks there. Uh, we have a little, a little place to stay with our camper so we can kind of settle in. And, and this year we're excited there. In fact, somebody is on our little property right now installing electricity so we can have a more comfortable stay, but we like to go to the coast in October and November and hunt. Uh, there's a lot of very nice festivals during those months out there and they're very active mycological societies and we we hunt for porcini and, and matsutake yeah it's it's beautiful it's it's one of our favorite places to end the year and it's always wet and rainy usually then we're we're kind of wrapping up around thanksgiving with the, the end of the year for us although you could stick around and hunt the coast for another six eight weeks i'm sure yeah i feel like oregon is one of those places where Really, you could find mushrooms almost every month of the year, pretty much. It, it feels that way. It feels that way. Maybe too. But anyway, I think that's a good segue into yes. into the mycological associations and the people. And I got to say, one of the richest things about doing what we do is encountering all these amazing people along the way. And and. It's just astounding to me, really, the foragers we've met, whether through, you know, mycological events or societies or through friends of friends. Or on Facebook. We met some really good friends on on Facebook. Or on Facebook. Yeah. I mean, just the most amazing people and such a fantastic community. And 
one of my favorite, favorite things about the foraging community is the diversity. I mean, you cannot label us. You really can't, whether young or old or educated or not, or, or women or men or what have you, whatever it is, we don't fit into a box aside from our love of fungi. So it's super fantastic to be part of a group of such diverse and wonderful people. I would say about the mycological societies, they're amazing. They're absolutely amazing. Everyone that we've interacted with has been so gracious and for sure, I would say if you are, if you want to get into foraging or if you're new to it, my very first piece of advice would be to join a mycological society near you. Mycological societies are one of those hidden resources. Like you're saying, whenever people ask me, how do I get into foraging? It's like, oh, let me show you this underground network of mycophiles who will yeah. probably tell you everything you need to know. Yeah. And they're so generous with their information. I mean, we're talking some of just the most amazing people that are out there, you know? Yeah. And a lot of those mycological societies, I know here in Colorado, we have three, none near us, unfortunately, but we have the Colorado Mycological Society in Denver. We have the Pikes Peak Mycological Society and then the Fort Collins Mycological Society. All of them are amazing. They all do awesome forays, you know, which is really the key to to getting into this at all is getting yourself out on a foray or two or three or four um, right, right. and learning the ropes from people that know what they're doing. That is the quickest way to get yourself into it. So we always recommend to people to join a society or association close to them. And then on top of that, the events that we've been to are awesome too. Of course, in Colorado, we have the Telluride Mushroom Festival, which is like the, the festival, right? The number uh, one, yes. The festival out there. And Trent and I have been going to that for six years, maybe or so now. This year was the first year we didn't actually go to Telluride because of the fires, really, and the pandemic. But well, and they had a virtual event this they year. They did, but there yeah. were, you know, there were, of course, still people in Telluride. Of course. Of <laughs> there course. were no mushrooms. There were no mushrooms, really. I would say that was one of the ways that we sort of really learned the ropes in Colorado is those first few festivals in Telluride that we went to, we went to every foray that we could. We went to all the forays. We didn't really go to many of the talks. We just got out into the woods the whole time and... And we learned so much from doing that. It was fantastic. We made some really good friends. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's all of these events, whether it be Soma or Telluride or, like Trent said, there's a bunch in Oregon on the coast. Yahats is a wonderful festival. Brookings has a festival. Mount Pisgah in, in Eugene is a fantastic festival. I think the biggest in the country in terms wow. of people that attend it's yeah a, it's a big scene thousands of people i mean they're, they're not all for it super cool but it's, it's pretty cool i mean i can't say enough about the people to just circle back around it's it's an amazing community i'm just going to jump in and name a few other favorites though oh yeah um I, I really like the ones that have a like sleepover camps where you get to like eat breakfast lunch and dinner with 200 people who are all kind of geeky like you <laughs> um, and places on the on the learning curve. That's where I feel like we've made the most connections with people, and also with mushrooms. So um, that's Na that would be yeah, Nama. Nama has an annual conference, which is probably for me the the one I, I would want to go to every year. And that, it moves. That is the North American Mycological Association. Right. This year it was supposed to be in Missouri in October, but it got canceled. I think next year the word is it's going to be in Colorado. Okay. Oh, lucky you. Yeah, so that, that's a really nice one. And, and people are, are really friendly at it. You get to meet really nice nice folks. In fact, we're here in Minnesota or in Wisconsin. With, we were visiting with Cappy and Fred, who we met at NAMA two years ago and have stayed in touch and visited and made friends with them. You know, it's, it's pretty cool. Isn't that one of the coolest things is the community that gets created, the friendships that you make, almost unlike any other hobby, I think. You're kind of bonded by this obsession with mushrooms because it is something that 
calls in people from all these different corners, but there's something subversive or different or funky about the people that get involved. And it's like such a strong bond that gets formed in so many of us in the modern society where everything's digital and everything's, you know, such a fast pace. We're all looking for places we can like drop in and be in community of like-minded people. And I really think mycological clubs and mushroom foraging groups really provide that space in such a unique way. They do. Absolutely. And so are you guys members of like 30 different clubs or how does that work for you? You just drop into the events or do you kind of keep up memberships everywhere? Keep up memberships and maybe I don't know. Yeah, maybe 10 or so. Wow. Okay. Well, that's the most I've heard of. So, but we, you know, if we know we're going to an area, we will join. First thing, um, yeah. We'll go join the association. You know, yep. And we'll go on a foray typically with them. We did that in Pennsylvania last year. That's um, tremendous. And, and made great friends there, too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the afternoon, we met some, met some really nice friends. Yeah. Making friends, finding mushrooms wherever you go. And then, as people who are now veteran foragers, what are some other tips, some other resources that you guys use to get better at foraging over the years? Any recommendations for listeners or people that want to get more into mushroom foraging? Obviously, we've just mentioned a huge one, almost a necessity is tie into your local community, but any other advice you can give to people? Yeah, I would say, I hate to mention the big fat dreaded word, Facebook, but we <laughs> use Facebook groups so much there's a, a ton of information out there and a lot of pretty much each area that you might be hunting mushrooms in has a related facebook group associated to the area um, and not only do we use that to potentially connect with people and sort of see what's going on but you can actually use past years of data if you go into a group and perform a search you can sort of search for let's say we we knew we were going to pennsylvania is a good example and we knew we were going in september and we really wanted to get into chicken of the woods and maitake in that area you know you could go search for maitake or chicken of the woods and just see at what time of year people they just can't help themselves they're going to talk about it you know if they're finding it they're talking about it in their facebook groups no one shares their secret spots, but you can glean a ton of information from those groups um, if you just do a little research. It's pretty handy to go to a group and, and scroll back and back and back and go look at last September or yeah. the September before and look at what mushrooms people are showing. What are they talking about? And then you'll have a good sense of what you might want to be looking for when you're out there. Yeah. And that would be one of my tips is a lot of beginners go in the woods and, and they look for every mushroom they can find and what's this, what's this, what's this, can I eat it, can I eat it, can I eat it. It's a lot easier when you start to maybe say, okay, I'm going to look for these three mushrooms right? yeah, and really, really look for those and, and cover ground. And, and you'll probably, it'll probably be easier than trying to ID every mushroom you find means you're going to walk about a hundred feet. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a real difference in being serious about chasing edible mushrooms and just being curious about mycology. You know, right. I mean, both have great things behind them, but if you're out chasing edible mushrooms, you pretty much want to learn to ignore everything else except for those two or three that you're looking for. Otherwise, like Trent mentions, there's just too much going on out there. Yeah. So you got to stay focused on one or two and ignore everything else. And then like so many of us after years of just chasing edibles you start to get curious about all the other stuff around you and you, you begin to take some extra time to just learn more about all the mushrooms that you're seeing but when you're first getting started on edibles it's i think good advice to stay focused on one or two that's the pretty classic bifurcation i see people who are interested in everything into mycology and they're walking the trail you know one mile an hour if that yeah. Uh, looking at everything and then you have your gourmet foragers, but you just pointed out inevitably they start to bleed together. But I know in talking with people, it's a pretty common timeline that your first season out foraging for people who are just getting into it, you're kind of ensconced with everything. You get taken with every fruit body that you see and then gradually you develop that vision for what you're looking for and you filter out all the junk mushrooms as they're called uh, and focus in on those, on those prized edibles. So 
And for you guys who are traveling around so much, if you're looking for chicken in the woods in Maitake in Pennsylvania, if you're looking for burrells, if you're going up to Oregon, what are you guys doing with all the mushrooms you find? I mean, does your van have a huge dehydrator built into the side of it or something? What are you doing with all the fruit bodies you find? I think that is such a good question (laughs) that leads into maybe a chat about this book that we just finished working on. Because one of the things that we are so interested in is this idea of preservation. Because we find ourselves with piles of mushrooms sometimes. And, you know, Trent and I are not the type of people that are just going to go out and get a basket for dinner. We are going to get out and get a boatload of mushrooms. And then we're going to have to worry about how do we preserve them so that we can enjoy them for the rest of the year. And we talk a lot about that in the book. It's something that we've just anybody that forages knows like that that's a, a big deal how do you clean and preserve that's the other half of the coin yeah, yeah. yeah. how do you do yeah. it and especially when you're out in the woods in a camper you know like how do you deal with that so we employ a lot of different methods to preserve mushrooms we don't have a van we have sort of a tow behind camp trailer they call them in oregon which does have some solar panels and stuff on it so we can keep our refrigerator and freezer working okay um, we have run our dehydrator on a generator all day long before <laughs> as you would <laughs> not really it's not very fun to do because it's pretty loud but again it uses gas so oftentimes what we will do is We will go out for say three days or something collect our bounty and then we'll go stop in an RV park or something and we will just like have the dehydrators going for two days and or we'll be cooking the mushrooms up and freezing them. We have been known to make jam from the camper. We've been pickling things from the camper. We've done all kinds of different preservation. In the last year, since we were tasked with writing a book and also cooking and photographing all of the recipes we had to also hunt all of the wild mushrooms so that we could do that right we spent a good part of the year just Uh, last season season, yeah just hunting mushrooms and freezing them dehydrating them so that we could then cook all these recipes we do uh we do a fair bit of freeze drying when when we have good electricity available to us yeah that is we have a freeze dryer at home in Colorado so ah uh, okay well and not that we can name an exhaustive list here but maybe just a couple big ones maybe a couple that I think people have different preservation methods for or there's some contention on the best preservation method I'm curious to hear because you guys are uniquely experienced in this I'm, I'm curious to hear uh, what you would do with say chanterelles what's your what's your method of preservation of choice we would not dehydrate them we would typically freeze them. Uh, We saute them and then freeze them is the most common way. However, freeze-dried chanterelles are absolutely superb. They maintain a very nice flavor and texture. Um, So we we like to freeze-dry as many as we're able to. We also like to do a, for quantity, we do a dexel, which means we cook them down with apricots and stock and onions and garlic. Sherry. Sherry. Lots of sherry. (laughs) <laughs> yep, and then we freeze we that. We cook it all down, and, and then we freeze it, and it's ready to put on. Oh, that sounds amazing. Good. Another thing we do with chanterelles is make jam. So um, they go real well with apricots, and so we make an apricot chanterelle jam, which is delightful on, like, a baked brie. What a genius apple. idea. They already smell like apricots. You're, you're halfway I there. Know, I know. And then the coolest thing, one of the coolest things that we started doing this last year something called shrub have you heard of that i've never heard of shrub other than you know the small lowland bush but <laughs> what, what is shrub Shrub is actually sort of like an old school drinking vinegar and what it is is equal parts of vinegar and sugar and typically a fruit and you make a syrup and then you add that syrup to like fancy drinks or you can add it with soda water and just have like a Soda. A fruity soda with a hint of vinegar. Okay. But we started making chanterelle shrub this last year, and that, I have to say, is delightful. It's a very nice beverage. 
right yeah. now, dehydrator uh, running, chanterelle jerky. jerky in it. So we've boiled Ooh. the chanterelles, parboiled them might be the word to use. And then we marinate them in a jerky flavoring, like a teriyaki in this case with pepper. And then we put them in the dehydrator. And they come out and make a, and you do that with oysters as well. It makes a delicious, very nice jerky. Really a good substitute for a meat jerky. Yeah. So as you can see, I mean, just with the chanterelle, yeah. what have we just listed five or six different things that are more than just the don't dehydrate, you should freeze type of thing. You know what I mean? There's there's a lot that you we've, can do. We've tried freezing them raw, freezing them uncooked. We've tried freezing them in blocks of ice. That didn't, neither of those techniques really, really so this is kind of next level preservation methods that I was hoping we would learn about and clearly leads us right into this book that you're writing now. Did a lot of this come, this creativity for doing this, just come from the abundance of chanterelles in time or was this something inspired by your quest to, to write this book and then talk about how the book came about, you know, how you got this opportunity? Oh gosh, I think a little of both probably. I mean, an abundance of chanterelles over time definitely causes you to get creative right or any mushroom frankly but yeah the book you know we were approached about a year and a half ago now by a publisher randomly to create a wild mushroom cookbook and like we're not chefs yeah Trent, yeah i was gonna say we're how, not chefs, yeah or are we writers i but, mean you know aside, but we're better writers than we are chefs. that's true <laughs> <laughs> so we were like gosh could we Pull this off? Why do we do this? Do we want to do said, this? Yes. And then we said, of course. <laughs> yeah, then we said, but from the very beginning, we said, yes, we'll do this, but we don't just want to do a traditional cookbook. We want it to be a little different than that. And Trent really wanted to focus on the preservation for all the reasons we just talked about. And I really wanted to focus on the people somehow that we've met along the way. We ended up with this book that is called Wild Mushrooms, A Cookbook and Foraging Guide is what it's called. We ended up with a book that is just as much about a celebration of the people that we've met along the way. We highlight 25 foragers in the book. Wow. And these folks who have been, some of them foraging their whole lives, others new to it, essentially each provided three or four recipes that they have been cooking themselves for their families over the years. So they are well-loved recipes from all these folks, some of whom are very well-known, folks like Langdon Cook and Eugenia Bone and Alan Burgo. We are super fortunate to have included in that group of 25, but also People we've met along the way that, that we know and love that are that are super important to us. All of these people are important to us for, you know, one reason or another. Yeah, a real right. mix of kind of normal amateur hunters as as well as you know chefs and more mycologically professional type folks. Right. I mean, of course, Trent and I provided some of our own recipes as well that we've been making over the years, but. The recipes really came from all these folks and we endeavor to tell their origin stories and why foraging is important to them. And each person sort of has a bio in that sense and you get to know them throughout the book. They've provided also tips. So you learn things that you never would have known, like maybe something as simple as, hey, take a potato peeler out into the woods with you when you're hunting porcini so that you can peel the stems instead of having to chunk it off with your knife oh that's genius right you know i mean some of these little cool tips that people tell you are like what whoa that's so cool How did i never think of that? Yeah, yeah yeah i was gonna i was yeah. gonna ask for maybe one or a couple examples of of some kind of preparation or maybe just a recipe that stands out to you as something that you guys tried and thought this is amazing and maybe that happened too many times to focus on just one but and we focused on 15 mushrooms and yeah. okay. kind of tell their story and how to best preserve them. And each mushroom has its own recipe section. Cause we also feel uh -huh. like a lot of cookbooks are like, I've got 10 pounds of black trumpets. What am I going to do with them? And cookbooks make that kind of difficult. Right. So, so like, what do I do with black trumpets? So you, in our case, you would just go to the black trumpet section and find, you know, and, Oh, that's and, really smart. Yeah. And, and mostly preserved mushrooms as well. We focus on that in the cookbook, but here's an example. We got a, just an awesome recipe. I think it was from Alika. You would never think this. It's a salad of black trumpets and uh, several different citruses, like oranges, 
hmm. and beasts. And those three things together are all winter products, like yeah. winter food, but it has a bright citrusy salad flavor. And it's, it's one of my favorite recipes in the book. I absolutely loved it. And it didn't make any sense to me when we made it, but it was delicious. I got to say less so choosing a recipe and more so just being able to appreciate oyster mushrooms more. They're not typically my favorite mushroom I'm going to put out there, but we had quite a few people who have Asian inspired recipes and some of the recipes from Hua Pham that she gave us, all of her recipes were really oyster mushroom recipes. But instead of like this idea of butter and cream, which we all do to most of our mushrooms, unless it's you know, matsutake or something, all of our recipes have more of a light kind of Asian flair to them. And they were like, out of potato starch, maybe it was a thickening agent. And they were just delightful because it was so different. It was so different from the traditional simple things that we all just immediately do to mushrooms and usually that involves butter yeah yeah none of these did so i loved those asian recipes that were just really nicely flavored and and much lighter than the typical heavy well and what what a cool idea to have inspirations from all over you know your book is showing the treatment of mushrooms in such a different way which is also something that doesn't happen with every cookbook even mushroom specifically mushroom cookbooks sometimes like you're saying it'll be butter it'll be a similar style so that's awesome you guys got to integrate different different styles and different takes on each mushroom anybody that reads it i think will be surprised at the some of the mushroom recipes that are in there yeah there's very different there's a lot of diversity very eclectic you know i mean we even have one of our friends from Vail, who is Slovakian, so we have some Slovak recipes in there, which are, you know, things like sauerkraut soup in the book, which has porcinis and, and sausage and sauerkraut in it, which sounds super weird, but it's really quite delicious. Yeah. We learned a lot. Another area was I did all the photography of yeah. the food, which was a big learning curve. Right, right. I will say, and maybe this is like in all cookbooks, is the picture has nothing to do with how good the recipe is. Like, <laughs> when you look at cookbooks, you're like, oh, this looks good. I'm going to cook this. I'm just here to tell you, not true. Um, yeah, yeah. You can't judge a recipe how it's going to taste by its photo. and how it's going to delight by the photo. But I will say that Trent's photos turned out amazingly, so you should pat yourself on the back for that learning that skill and the COVID thing worked out for us because we gathered crazy amounts of mushrooms all year of all all the 15 varieties we wanted to to cook traveled all over and then we cooked them earnestly all winter and we finished up probably the week before the pandemic hit yeah wow good timing right there we finished it up which is really good because we could have never pulled these recipes off yeah we had chefs actually uh we are fortunate to know quite a few chefs and we had a lot of friends helping us in our kitchen cooking the recipes so that we could photograph them and you couldn't um, get the ingredients yeah you couldn't even you know you couldn't find things like baby napa cabbage like that didn't exist for a while especially you know especially those early days of the pandemic i mean you you were staying away from grocery stores Yes. So then we then the pandemic hit and we had at that point it worked out well. We had already had our mushrooms. We had already cooked everything and photographed it. And we just got to spend three or four months at home writing the book. Yeah, we hadn't really actually we written anything <laughs> yet. I was so stressed out about that. Yeah. <laughs> writing and editing would seem like the scary part. And I guess for, for people who this is your first book, was it different than what you expected harder easier i mean what was that journey like versus your preconceived notions of writing a book you know i think you you kind of go through every emotion at one point like in the beginning you know the overwhelmed state where you're like what have we gotten ourselves into (laughs) and then you kind of get rolling and you're having fun with it and then you know in the end you you get the stress back again but the brutal part of just editing and copy editing yeah over and over to be honest, you just kind of do, you just do it because you have a deadline and you know, you have to meet it and you have to deliver. So True. 
just do it and then you come up for, for air afterwards and you're like okay now what do we do you know we've yeah. we've spent all this time and you know all these crazy nights jamming you know until one two in the morning sometimes and then come up for air and it's like okay what's the next project there was a void in our life that we then proceeded to fill with I would say worry, like, is this book going to be any good? What are, are people going to like it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> is, it well, is it is it any good? Like, we, we had no distance from it yeah. at, at that point. That's true. When we turned in the manuscript to the publisher. We can only hope that people love it. Yeah, yeah. but we, we did get some initial reviews out that sounds like we, we did well. I mean, it sounds like you can't go wrong enlisting amazing foragers, getting recipes, Giving a showcase that's more than just a cookbook, I think, is a great place to start because so many of us buy cookbooks and then it just kind of sits there. So having a little more interest, I think, is really smart to, to get people engaged. And I guess, when is it available to everyone listening? When can we go out and get the, the cookbook? The official release date, I believe, is October 13th of 2020. So it's coming very soon. Yeah. Um, you can find it now on our website in our shop. You may have to search a little bit. I haven't added links all over the website just yet, but it is in the shop. You can buy it there. You can pre-order it, I should say. And I believe we'll, we will start shipping those books the end of September even. Um, you can also pre-order it on Amazon right now, which is even a little bit cheaper than buying it from us. Mm. But if you buy it from us, you'll get a signed book. So. Oh, well... I'm obviously buying it from you guys then. I need the signature. <laughs> we would love it if people supported yeah, we, us. We don't have Prime either, so there might be some shipping on top. Oh, yeah, yeah. But still. But, um, yeah, so it's available now from our website or on Amazon or really, I think, any network out there that's selling books. I believe it's available for free. Well, I definitely want to get my hands on it because, like we talked about, preserving, preparing, what you do with your foraged vines is the other half of that process and probably an even bigger portion than, than half. You know, going out looking for mushrooms is a day-long activity. The preservation, preparation, that continues for days after. Yes. So this is like a really important part of the forage process. And I'm always looking for good resources that inspire or give me something more than just saute it and throw it in pasta or put it on pizza, which is unfortunately my default too often. It's a go -to. So Yeah, it's a go-to. But so I'm excited to expand the repertoire a little with the Modern Forager cookbook. And I hate to ask this to people who just wrote a book and just put in that labor of love, but what is next for Modern Forager? I mean, what, what do you guys have on the horizon in terms of content you're putting out or anything like that? Gosh, I think we have a few projects underway, really, that hopefully focus on continuing to build community I think with this pandemic in place, it's caused us to kind of really sit down and think more and more like what what is Modern Forager? What could it be? What is what is this brand? Um, and I think there's some opportunity out there if we choose to follow the path. We try to put as much time into it as we can in between traveling to, to actually hunt mushrooms and doing our real work right. from the road often. You know, I don't know, Trent, what do you, yeah. what well, would you a, say? We have a few products now in our store, too. We have foraging bags and knives. True. And they're kind of fun because the foraging bags are hand-sewn in Colorado with upcycled material. Fantastic. Uh, and they're they're really made for foraging. I think for us, part of the secret is we want to make sure we enjoy it. We would like to make a little bit of money from our hobby, but... We don't want to turn it into a job. We don't want to be picking mushrooms and cleaning them and selling them. We, we want to find things that add to our pleasure of, of mushrooms. I, I think doing some more traveling and speaking at festivals and events is higher on our priority list. I'd like to develop a few more fun products that are, you know, for foragers, even if people don't buy the heck out of them, it's, it's fun to do. Yeah. Kristen's a designer and we have some pretty cool mushroom design stuff that we haven't really we just make for us so <laughs> it might be fun to, for us to i think to put that out there yeah so probably we'll see more of us in time here we have a lot of ideas i don't know which one's going to come out next but well that's a good place to be and what i'm struck by is you guys are in it for really the passion of it and that's something that i know a lot of people 
who are into foraging, into building community around foraging, end up at that precipice of do I launch into this full time and make it something that my living depends on? Or do I keep it as a hobby where it can still be fun and it doesn't have this you know, soul crushing pressure of needing to support myself with it sometimes. Uh, so it's interesting to hear you guys chose that path. And for me, that's, that's the path I've chosen as well. So I resonate a lot with that of keeping it as a passion, as this hobby, you have ideas brewing stuff organically happens when it makes sense and it's the right time, but it feels like that's the way to kind of have it be the most sustainable joy, if you will. Yeah. And I think that's really important for us, you know, cause we've really turned it into a lifestyle that we love and um, I don't ever want to get to the point where we sacrifice that love. We're very protective of our passion, right? Yeah. Keeping it fun is really important to us. Yeah. yeah. I think, I think that's a huge thing in this age of everything has to be a hustle. We all have to be entrepreneurs. It's important to remember that now you don't always have to turn everything into that. So I really, really connect with that. So just to remind everyone again, where can people find you guys, uh, any different platforms, where can people find the morale maps, the books? What's what's the best place to interact with Modern Forager? People can find us at modernforager.com. That's the easiest. We are also on Facebook and Instagram. Those are the two other places that we keep active. And that's pretty much the story. Well, I loved hearing the story, hearing the story of you guys and how you've traverse through foraging and I really look forward to following your work moving forward obviously getting my hands on the book and the morale maps especially as we start getting closer and closer you know we kind of just passed morale season already I'm looking at the next one but definitely excited to engage with your guys work more and then I have a couple closing thoughts that I like to ask all my guests and I have a feeling you guys will have some really great answers for these first of all a mushroom you love and why maybe each of you guys can pick a mushroom I always preface it with this doesn't have to be your favorite. There's not that kind of pressure, but just a mushroom, a mushroom you love and why. I'll start with that. I'm going to choose the yellowfoot mushroom, the um, winter chanterelle, the winter chanterelle. And I am choosing it because I think it's one of the most underappreciated mushrooms. Mm. I absolutely love it. It's very similar to me to a black trumpet. Um, it dehydrates beautifully and it works very well with black trumpets in recipes and whatnot. And just one of my favorite mushrooms to find simply because I feel like not a lot of people appreciate it. And there's a and lot they're beautiful. About it. They're beautiful. Too. Yes. What about you, Trent? Boy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the Matsutake would be my favorite. I think it's just a a fun mushroom to hunt and it has such unique flavor profiles it's it's fun to discover in the kitchen um, and i know like other mushrooms i i'm really confident comfortable with but i feel like the matsutake surprises me mm. uh, it delights me in, in different ways and I, I like having a mushroom that i don't feel like i need to add butter and cream and dairy products i like the recipes that opens up Trent also loves his ramen, so lots of times often find their way into ramen. Although we had resinous polypore just for the first time this week, and that's a delightful mushroom. Yes. I don't know if it's my favorite, but I want to go find some more resinous polypore. That's one that I haven't tried yet. Oh my gosh. It's like like beef fat. It's really cool. Wow. Okay, perfect perfect for ramen then. Yeah, it's like a beefy, it really has a beefy flavor and a fatty texture. It's very shocking. Oh, man. Great answers. Great answers. And and as a bigger kind of general question, and you guys can answer this together or individually, but what has a relationship with fungi given to you? And this can be, you know, broad new perspectives, some kind of new spiritual appreciation or something, you know, more practical. But what is a relationship with fungi given to you? I'll start with that. I think for me, I just love the sense of connectedness that our love for mushrooms has given us to nature and getting us out into the woods pretty much every week in some fashion or another and being able to appreciate everything about nature from the very small to the very large and to be able to kind of see how interconnected everything is. 
I appreciate that a lot in my life. It sort of provides this sense of balance, maybe, that I think a lot of people are seeking that maybe don't have. And, and for me, that's important. Wow, I, I couldn't agree more with that. That's, that's exactly what it does, rebalance, get you out into nature. I think that's tremendous. I would say connectedness, too, but in this case, connectedness with, with you and you know, how, how we're really on the same page with our, our passion and our hobby really keeps Kristen and I close and then connecting this with other people that we've met where mushrooms at first give us something to talk about that we have in common but as we've made friends our friendship has gone far beyond just mushrooms yeah uh, it's kind of a nice entree into friendly relationships i'm seeing a potential book in the future foraging for better relationships <laughs> good one i like it <laughs> Well, it seems to be a recurring theme. I mean, outside of your guys' love story, so many people, that's kind of the like a center point in the glue that binds their relationships together is mushrooms and mushroom hunting. Well, fantastic answers there. And then, again, a big, broad question. You can answer however you like. Um, but what is the lasting impact that you guys hope to have with your work, creating community and creating cookbooks, showing people this wonderful world of mushroom foraging, going to mycological societies and events? What's the lasting impact that you hope to have, or maybe part of a greater movement that you hope you're, you're contributing to? That's a big question. That's a tough one. Easy um, one, yeah. <laughs> I'll answer that one first. Got I think uh, I really like it when we can introduce somebody new to mushrooms, and you know they have to want it. But when they want it, and you take them out and you show them a few mushrooms, and, and their eyes light up, yeah. and, and then they stay in touch and they continue foraging and I love that part of it, that that moment when they light up and then they always say, I've been walking by those for years. Yeah, I totally <laughs> agree with that. And uh, especially kids too. I love to see people getting kids out and getting them into the woods and, and getting them off the devices and, and all of that stuff. I just absolutely adore it when I see families out in the woods together. I think it's amazing. That's fantastic. And I think that's kind of the great work the goal is to really inoculate as many other people as possible, oh, get them interested. It. And I think we're just on the precipice. I mean, I'm very much one symptom of that. I think we're on this precipice of a lot of great change that's going to come from this more in-depth relationship with nature through mushrooms and then through that, a more in-depth relationship with science and how things work. So it's a really exciting time. And I definitely think you guys are doing a massive part in getting people excited and getting people into it. I hope so. It's been such a great journey for us so far and one that we don't see stopping anytime soon. Well, guys, this has been a fantastic conversation. I feel like I've learned a ton. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your viewpoints and just being so open and thoughtful. It was, it was really a joy to speak with you both. Thank you so much for being on Mushroom Hour. Thanks, Sharon. Thanks for having us. Good